you're listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada, located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. It's not uncommon for people to hang on to an idea that says that the Old Testament is tough and a bit gloomy, while the New Testament is largely marked by sunshine and light, that in a sense there is one God shown in the old and another in the new. Now that simply doesn't wash, of course, because there is only one God, even if over the millennia that God has been understood and perceived and received in ways that would have made sense in those particular times and contexts. Not only that, but tonight we have a hope and light-filled reading from the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah, and then a gospel reading in which Jesus sounds as gloomy and foreboding as anything from one of the crankier of the Hebrew prophets. So what's going on? Let me begin with the reading from Isaiah which opens with those lovely words, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You that have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Come, everyone, come, the prophet proclaims. And he's speaking to a people who know the pain and loss and displacement of the exile. They're far from home, a home that now lies in ruins thanks to the Babylonian army. They're in captivity in Babylon wondering if God has forgotten or forsaken them. The people now hear this invitation to abundance. They're not a forsaken people, Isaiah proclaims, and so seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon God while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them return to the Lord who will have mercy on them and to our God who will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways my thoughts than your thoughts. God is close, the prophets proclaiming, and God is longing to be sought after and found, even there in the very midst of exile and displacement. No matter what you've done in the past, Israel, or how far you've fallen, you can now return to the Lord who will have mercy, to our God who will abundantly pardon Why? Why is this even possible? Because my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. And here N.T. Wright comments, Isaiah appeals to the transcendence of God, the, the otherness of God, not to frighten, but to explain how much more generous and merciful God is than we could ever have imagined. Because God's ways are not ours. We might still be thinking of trying to even scores, and God is saying, just come. So come. 
Lovely, inviting, generous, merciful words, and so good to hear on a Sunday evening in Lent. And then come those words from Jesus. Now, the context is he's teaching and some people come to him with some of the news of the day, the, the front page probably from the you know, Galilean equivalent of the Winnipeg Sun, perhaps even the National Enquirer, I'm not sure, but news of the day, and it's pretty awful news about some Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Now, that wouldn't have been a case of Pontius Pilate making an actual blood sacrifice of human Galileans, but probably points to Pilate having sent his soldiers out to deal with some of the Galilean pilgrims coming from the north country into Jerusalem at festival time, who were suspected of being rebels or revolutionaries. And so the soldiers find them. They find them at the temple. They dispatch them with their swords. They don't care what the space is. Job's done. And they leave these people's blood on the pavement stones of their precious and holy temple thereby defiling it by by bringing that human blood spilled into that temple place. Do you think, Jesus replies, that because these Galileans suffered in this way, they were worse sinners than all other Galileans? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. Then he proceeds to reference another tragic, well-known local incident in which a tower in Jerusalem had collapsed and 18 people had died in the accident, making, and then he makes exactly the same observation that it had nothing to do with their relative goodness or badness. They were no better, no worse than anybody else who happened to be there at that time. It was just quite random, as things often are, But still, unless you repent, you will all perish just as they did. Now, what does Jesus have in view here? Why is he pressing them so hard at this moment on this matter of repentance? Or as N.T. Wright asks, what does repent mean in this context? And then he answers, Repentance doesn't mean simply give up your private sins. Rather, turn from your headlong flight away from God's mercy, from your quest for your own national salvation by rebellion against Rome. Unless you give it up, Roman swords and falling stonework will be your lot, not as an arbitrary punishment from a vengeful God, but as the direct result of the way you have freely chosen, following your own thoughts rather than God's thoughts. You see, in that time, so much of the hope of the people was tangled up in a dream of a Jerusalem free of the Roman Empire. And it didn't take much to convince them that with the right leader, another King David the coming of the Messiah. If one of those would come or somebody like it, 
a revolution was possible. And here Jesus is saying to turn away from that illusion because it was illusory. Turn toward the way that he incarnates right before their faces, the way of God's radical grace and mercy and love and forgiveness. That's the only path with the future, to follow the ways and thoughts of God, which are so much higher than the ways and thoughts of a very restless humanity. And then he tells them his little parable about the man with the fig tree, which is planted in his vineyard, and that for three years has refused to bear any fruit. Frustrated that this tree is just wasting space, the landowner orders his gardener to cut it down. But the gardener has another plan. Sir, let it alone for one more year until I dig round it and put manure on it, tend to it. In other words, if it bears fruit next year, well and good. But if not, then you can cut it down. Now, there's a tradition of reading the parable allegorically, with the vineyard owner representing God, God the Father, the gardener representing Jesus, intervening on behalf of the people. The people, of course, are represented by the barren fig tree, for whom Jesus pleads more time. That kind of a reading risks dividing God into two, with justice and righteousness on one hand, mercy and grace on the other. It's a variation on the problematic assumption that in the Old Testament, God is all about earned righteousness and judgment, while in the New Testament, Christ brings grace and mercy. That's too simplistic. And again, our reading from Isaiah clearly reminds us that such simplistic categorizations are just not on. Perhaps the character of the vineyard owner isn't meant to point to any particular character so much as to those human ways and thoughts of which Isaiah wrote. The sort of human ways and thoughts that were heading the people toward a disastrous rebellion against the Roman Empire. The temptation to take it in hand, do it ourselves, learn to be as merciless as Pilate and Caesar, throw them off at all costs, no mercy, that sort of thing. Meanwhile, the gardener, quite probably representing Jesus himself, But a Jesus working in complete harmony with God, the gardener mercifully goes to work tending the tree so that it might just begin to bear fruit, might begin, as it were, to turn towards God's ways and God's thoughts. Now, it's really interesting to note that the Greek word translated as let it alone, let the tree alone, let it be for a year. That Greek word is aphos, or forgive. Forgive the tree for not bearing fruit. And let me go to work on nurturing it, is what the gardener actually says. It's exactly the same word that appears at the crucifixion when Jesus cries out, Father, forgive them, aphos. For they know not what they do. 
The fact that that word plays in both of those critical places, doesn't that reinforce the point that what Jesus does, his mercy, his grace, his love, and particularly his forgiveness, is always in harmony with God, not set against it? That it has always and eternally been the will of God that we would set aside our thoughts, our ways, our aspirations, and all that draws us in the wrong direction and turn towards God's thoughts, God's ways, God's aspirations. That is the character of God, Old and New Testament. The parable, of course, does end in attention. Forgive it. I'll tend it for a year. If there's fruit, all good. If not, then let it be cut down. The end. And so the tension is, will the fig tree bear fruit? Will the people turn round from their aspirations to take sword in hand and throw off Rome? If not, it could only end in tragedy. By 70 AD, the great temple had been destroyed, the city devastated, the people dispersed all around the Mediterranean basin and beyond. So no, as a nation, as a people, Israel had not turned around. Yet the gardener was and is at work. And God's chosen people not cast off forever. And then a new people called Christians birthed. The gardener is still at work, praise God. Because today we need that gardener's nurture and care as much, if not even more, than ever before. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to a St. Benedict's Table podcast. For more information on our church, or to provide support for our online work, visit us at stbenedictstable.ca.